Welcome to episode 38 of The Photo Show. This episode is sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Department, chaired by Charles Traub. Yes, and uh, we recorded in the big room at SVA, which is their uh, fantastic new theater space. And uh, a number of episodes coming up will all be uh, recorded in that uh, great space. Yeah, we're really happy to be there. And if you want to learn more about the MFA photo program, go to sva.edu, click on graduate at the bottom of the page, and then click on photography. And... uh we are recording this on the verge of uh, going back to uh, school, right? The semesters are starting up. I'm teaching my first class tomorrow. How about you, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. We do that crazy pre-class week, uh, a week of meetings and getting ready and things like that. But yes, tomorrow starts classes. Yeah. And uh, we're recording this introduction on uh, Martin Luther King Day. And I've certainly been thinking about that all day and, you know, in our current political climate and everything. And really, our generation, we we inherited everything that they did that got done during the civil rights. But our parents were affected by it. But um, but, you know, we didn't directly go through it. And one of the interesting things about this uh, conversation coming up with our, our guest, Jeffrey Henson Scales, is as a, even as a kid, he was directly, um, you know, he he got to see this uh, right from the front lines, and and I I, th- I think it's valuable. I, a lot of uh, his work, he has these amazing portraits of celebrities that everyone recognizes. You know, like oh, you know, Michael Jackson, Jackson Five, and all this stuff. But uh, I, I'm equally blown away by seeing these uh, photographs of you know Eldridge Cleaver, and that you know thinking of him as a young man with his Leica, you know, getting to walk around and see all these uh, people from the Black Panther Party back then. Yeah, he starts out uh, as a teenager. As he calls himself a kind of cub reporter or cub newspaper photographer for the Blank Panther newspaper. And he talks about how he ends up devoting himself more to photography through various things that happen in his life. And, and some of those things involved not being able to find work as a black man in America in the 70s. Uh, and is timely because uh, his wonderful book, House, is one of the five SPQR titles. And, uh, you know, I, I know, I know I've spoken about it in podcast in the past, but, um, you know, you really ought to have a look at this book and these amazing photographs from, uh, the barbershop that is right below or was right below his apartment in Harlem. And, uh, he talks about it in, in the, in the podcast, but, uh, it's worth getting your hands on a copy just to flip through and see these photographs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another set of great photographs that's up is uh, only you have a limited time to go see if you are in the New York City area or even Brooklyn area is uh, at Secret Dungeon, which is a uh, artist-run project and exhibition space located in a storage unit right here in Bushwick, uh, run by Nat Ward and a host of others uh, whose names I do not know. I th- actually think Patrice Helmar is also involved with that. But uh, there's an uh, an amazing exhibition up through, I think, for one more month uh, by Jeff Ladd, who was a guest on our show. And they're all panoramic photographs made with uh, Panorama, uh, photographs made from between 1991 to 96 for the most part and a couple early 2000s mixed in there. But um, just wonderful photographs, and, and it's worth making the effort to go out there. If you want to find out about it, just go to Facebook and they're at at Secret Dungeon, and you'll find it. And I believe you have to go by on Saturdays or like contact them if you're coming by. But uh, it's worth worth the effort. Yeah, I love those photographs. I have I'm the proud owner of two of them because you know we were putting on that pan, traveling panorama show, and and uh, Jeffrey offered 
them to me. So uh, I love looking at those. Nice. All right. Well, enjoy the show, everyone. And thank you again to the School of Visual Arts for sponsoring us. And we'll talk soon. book exchange going on here. That's right. Two photographers published under the SPQR imprint. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So then we can open it. Yeah. 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 Should we need to reference it for anything, I guess? (laughs) Exactly. That's right. Hold it up to the microphone. Page 34. (laughs) Now that'll make the listeners will have to run out and buy the book. Oh, of course. So that they know what we're talking about. (laughs) That's right. So I just want to take a moment here to remark on... uh, how we're recording this episode in, in a brand new space, um, courtesy of the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, run by Charles Traub. Yeah, here we are. And they, right now they're calling it the big room, but yes. it's, uh, <laughs> it's a theater space that they just renovated. And we just noticed that there are these incredible doors that go out onto the street that have these uh, massive counterweights that were put in by a company in uh, 18, the 1800s, probably, or something. Yeah, yeah. Ogden, wait, we know it. Turnover door. Ogden turnover door. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so uh, that also means we're right in next to the streets of New York City, next to a police station. Uh, yeah. There might be a little uh, noise every once in a while. Yeah, we've already heard one siren go off, so <laughs> let's hope another one does for effect. So hello, Jeffrey. Thanks for joining us today. Ah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Thanks. and you had a little trouble getting here today, lots of traffic and noise. Well, first somebody got sick on the subway, then I changed subways, and then I took a cab and it was literally gridlocked from, it took a half an hour to get here from 23rd and 7th. Oh, oh. And we're on a 21st and 3rd. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. And it was 20 some dollars in the, oh. in the cab. Oh man. Oh no. Oh. So, but nice. it's worth it. Oh, That's thank right. you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, Jeffrey, you got a, you actually got a very early start in photography. I was reading over some of your bio and, and, um, you started as a, a young teen. Yes. Uh, around 11 years old, my father gave me a Leica. Pre-teen. Yeah. Pre-teen, yeah. <laughs> uh, a Leica 3G. Wow. So that, that's, of course, that's what makes the story kind of wild because I, I got a camera when I was about that, or I was a little younger, but it was just, you know, some uh, compact uh, camera that probably took uh, cassette film or something. So to be handed a Leica 3G as an 11-year-old, that's pretty amazing. Well, my father was a uh, an amateur photographer and a a camera collector, um, and he even like uh, worked on a lot of photo projects. Like, I don't know if people know the famous photo of Huey Newton in the in the chair, the African chair that was the oh, yeah. iconic Black Panther picture. He was there when they made that because his one of his best friends took that picture, so hmm. he was helping with that shoot but he gave me uh, like a 3g which uh i subsequently traded for a pentex spotmatic because quite frankly it's easier to use yeah well the 3g is actually one of the ones that 
people aren't as crazy about like it's not as collected i have a 3f and people are more crazy about the 3fs because it's like neither fish nor fowl it's not really a three and that people are like well why don't we get a m3 if you're going to go ahead and get the that viewfinder system right Right, and and that you know the through the lens. This was you know 1965, right. uh, and you know through the lens metering, seeing through the lens. It just for for you know someone that age, it was just much easier. Yeah, absolutely, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, but you already mentioned uh, the Black Panther Party, so we could get into that as well as I. Not only did your father have connection there, but you wound up making a lot of photographs that were then used in uh, newspapers that the party was putting out and posters and everything else, right? Yeah, I was sort of like, you know, the teenage cub photographer of the Black Panther paper. They let me move around with all the, you know, the, the leaders of the party. I would ride around with them and take pictures and work on the newspaper. And uh, Time magazine took one of my pictures from the Panther paper and put it in time when I was 14. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, yeah, that's wild. Man. So I get to say I had my first picture published in Time magazine when I was 14. Mm. Um, and so the, I, uh, I imagine with your father and, and the Black Panther Party, that helped shape, you know, your, your ideas and, and some of your politics and things like that? Uh, well, he was actively involved in political stuff. And my mother came out of that San Francisco beatnik community from the 1950s. And we used to have, I grew up in a, uh, a very large house in Berkeley where we had a ballroom in the house. Wow. And we used to have big fundraising parties that hundreds of people would come to. And uh, Was that for the Black Panthers or for other things as well? My father liked to throw these, you know, big parties and for instance we had a when Stokely Carmichael handed over the chairmanship of the organization SNCC to H. Rap Brown uh, they had the ceremony at our family's house and then uh, when I first met Eldridge Cleaver at the Black Panther office he said is your father Emmett Scales I said yes you still live in that big house in the Berkeley Hills yes so well, why don't you have a book party for me there? I said, okay, I'll ask my dad. <laughs> Which we ultimately did have a book party for him there. Wow, oh, that's amazing, yeah. You know, my mother still lives there in that house. Oh, wow. oh she does? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. So that, I mean, there's so much history there, right? That's incredible. There's a lot of history. And my father bought the house. He, we lived in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury, which was a whole other scenario in the mid-60s. Mm. And uh, there was a guy who owned the house before my father or my parents, and he was a jazz aficionado. And so it was such a big house, he would tell all the jazz musicians coming from New York they could stay there for free when they were in the Bay Area. And we'd have these parties, and my father was at one of these parties and said, you know, if you're ever in a bind and you need to sell this place, you call me. <laughs> and apparently he went bankrupt and called go. my dad. and. You know, uh, we got this fantastic place kind of on a song, mm. you know, and it was, you know, four stories with a view of the entire San Francisco Bay. Wow. Where you could just see the whole bay. Oh. And. Uh, How often do you visit? Not very often. Mm. I just don't mm. have the, you know, I can't get back there as often as I would like. Mm-hmm. 
Does your mother need a roommate? <laughs> <laughs> she has a roommate, and she rents out several rooms. <laughs> you know, because she's they've they've made a few apartments. Yeah, I bet. Just, yeah. Sure. Oh. Who wouldn't want to live in the former ballroom? You yeah. Know? Well, not in the, <laughs> the ballroom is still the ballroom. Oh. Because that's at the ground floor, and then you know there's a waterfall inside the house, and you know it's just like ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> it doesn't work because you know it doesn't make sense to have that, <laughs> but it's it's technically still there. Right. The feature was added, right. and there it is. The feature is there, and it's like, you know, my mother and, and, and my father, when I lived there, was like, you know, we're not going to spend the money to keep this thing working because it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah It'd be like uh, getting one of these places now that has, like, something designed specifically for Jello, like for a Jello bathtub or whatever. And you're like, well, you know, maybe we don't need to keep that going. We don't need the refrigerator for that. <laughs> Your mother is a painter. My mother is a painter and was a filmmaker and a, and a mural artist. Um, and she's uh, hasn't, uh, she's been, you know, she still paints. And your father was uh, started out uh, doing audio engineering and then got... He was, uh, yeah, audio engineering. And uh, he had a high-end hi-fi store in San Francisco. And he, he was the manager of the Kingston Trio and worked at the Hungry Eye and... They used to go out and make mobile recordings of, you know, the folk artists in the in the early '60s, in the mid '60s, uh, and then when the Great Society, uh, LBJ and the Great Society started making opportunities, he moved into poverty programs and uh, things like that, and then ultimately became director of undergraduate scholarships at the University of California, Berkeley. So. Uh, you know, we get a little bit of the family background, but it's also just to understand, you know, what was it like that now a lot of people that we've interviewed before have said, oh, my first camera was from my, you know, a parent and I saw their work or whatever. But it's very different to then make early photographs, have them published in Time magazine. And did this change what you imagined was possible that there could be like a life in as a photographer or life in photography from this early beginning? I don't know that it changed it it was fun i mean because when you're 14 years old you know you're not really looking long range mm. you're having fun you're doing things that are fun um one day between uh 11 and 14 my father brought home a box and inside the box was every issue of life magazine from the first one to the present mm. he said you'll probably like these and so as a young as a child, I used to just look through Life magazine, stacks of them, all the way back to the, you know, that uh, 1936 one with the, I think it's the Margaret Burke White cover of The Dam. The Dam, right. Yeah. So, you know, I knew there was life and careers in photography, but I was mostly doing it for fun. We always had a dark room at the house, so it was, you know, it was right there. Um, I ultimately... When I was, when I graduated from high school, I was, uh, well, let me go back a bit. My photography teacher in high school was a photographer named Bill Dane, who is a, a remarkable photographer. And he actually was renting one of these rooms at my parents' house. Uh, 
Uh-huh. And because, oh, wow. you know, it was awesome and there was a dark room there. <laughs> oh, uh, nice. And then when I, as soon as I graduated from high school, PBS hired me to be a producer director trainee at the, at the local PBS station. So I did that for two years and I didn't do that much photography. And then I went to UCLA to try to go to the film program, but because of the structure of the school, I couldn't do any hands-on film work for two years. And I'd already been doing hands-on directing and producing for two years. So that was frustrating. So I gravitated back to photography Mm. just because in the, in the early seventies, Hollywood was not a real open place to a young director of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, that had big ambitions, but didn't quite, re- you know, I even had a reel, you know, I was, mm. but I think they thought I was like nuts. <laughs> Do you still have that? Oh, the, 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 the reel? Uh, there's somewhere. I don't, mm. uh, I don't know where it is. That'd be interesting to see. Right. Yeah. But, but so I think that, this, this is a lot, this happens a lot too. If you're interested in photographic visualization of the world and, there's filmmaking, which has narrative, all this narrative potential and, you know, that is very seductive. Uh, when I was at the museum school, I was splitting my time between film and photography. And I loved the social aspect of filmmaking. And I loved, you know, of course, watching the moving images. So uh, I already used the word seductive, but I'll use it again. And um, but then there's also this thing of you need more, you need people around, you need money, you need all these things. And then there's still photography where you there's like there's you don't need of course you don't need permission but you need very little resources to just make it happen right exactly it's easier to in, in fully engage in the creative process by yourself yeah you know and i used to travel with musicians after i left school i and so i would just ride around the country with a camera and just taking pictures of sort of whatever and now is this when you got the Hasselblad i got the Hasselblad some years later when I, I uh, after traveling for a few years and I had actually had been living in New York off and on in like 74, 75. And I decided that I wanted to do album covers and album covers are square. Yeah. So I <laughs> wanted a square camera. And I also liked the idea of a larger negative. And so... Uh, I asked my father for a Hasselblad, and he said, you know, that's the last camera I'm giving you because that was expensive. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have one already, I guess. He, no, well, he, used to, he was big with the, with, the, with the photo swap meets. He uh, traded and, you know, because you know, one of the other cameras I had when I was a teenager, well, that he had that I used, he had a, an old Nikon SP rangefinder. You know, he had all the lenses for that. And, and then when he... he died i inherited his minolta cle or oh, cl love those that he had modified to take the canon 28 mm. lens hmm. you know the 2.8 or 2 lens yeah or the so-called winogrand lens yeah exactly <laughs> you know and this was just the camera he carried around with him was he a street shooter i mean with what kind of no no he was a tourist mm-hmm. you know and uh and then I had the camera for like, 
I didn't use it for uh, maybe 10 years after he died. I just sort of, you know, I was in a drawer and then I had done uh, a body of work in 2009 where I was photographing every day and I, and I had purchased a full frame DSLR camera, uh, digital, and I shot every day and produced this body of work called That Year of Living. And uh, I was shooting every day for like 2009, 2010, but I wanted something smaller and lighter. And, but I didn't have the resources to get, you know, one of these fancy pants Leica digital cameras. Mm -hmm. I said, well, wait a minute. I've got this Minolta that's been sitting in a drawer for 10 years. And, you know, well, I could get a Leica for $10,000 or I could use this camera. And when I get to $10,000 worth of film and processing, I'll <laughs> evaluate whether I need to, you know, buy another camera, which I have not spent $10,000 on film and processing yeah, yet. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I like the camera a lot. And I do get the film processed and transferred to a digital thing for editing, which is really a wonderful way to edit. Yeah, I want to, and I definitely want to come back to that, that project, that year of living and, and mm -hmm. that series. Uh, but you were, you were getting into um, doing the record album covers and things mm -hmm. like that. And, and, you, and then you also got into music producing a little bit. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that was fairly recently. Oh, okay. That was uh, probably 2000. 13. Oh, so, so when you were doing the album covers, where were you living then? Well, before, before the album covers, I was a road manager for some major acts, and I traveled, and I, I was a road manager, and I would uh, produce and design the live shows for bands. You know, I was with bands that played in stadiums and clubs, and I worked for many years for Minnie Ripperton who's uh, Maya Rudolph's mother. Hmm. You know, we toured a lot, and then she died in, I believe, 79. And So most of this was happening in the 70s? Yeah. yeah. And it was at that point when she died where I fully committed to a career as a photographer hmm. because I realized I couldn't commit to someone else's art. I needed to commit to my own at that juncture because she was like family and I, you know, I didn't have that level of commitment to anybody else. So I went specifically to do album covers for a living, which was difficult, but you know, it was rewarding at the time. Yeah. But difficult because it's just work coming and going or being a freelance photographer, mm -hmm. being a, a, a black freelance photographer in, in the late seventies was, you know, it was fairly restrictive. Uh, one of the things that I learned from Bill Dane was he used to make photo postcards and send them out. That was one of his big things. And for for high school kids, you know, that was a great way to, like, interact with making prints and getting work around. So I was trained by him to do that. So I had been doing that, and I had been – when I got to Hasselblad, I was tr still traveling on the road with, with, with many – Ripperton, but I'd always have the Hasselblad in my briefcase, you know, and uh, I'd take pictures of the various people, you know, backstage, there's a lot of celebrities and whatever. And I, then I would print those on postcards. So I had this five by seven box that had like, you know, 80 or a hundred of these little square pictures. Mm -hmm. And then uh, someone at one point said, oh, I gotta, you gotta show this to my friend who's an art director. 
and uh, and they were very Hasselblad with a flash, you know, because I was very influenced by Dan Arbus and another photographer, Moshe uh, Moshe Braca, I think is. Mm. It was an album cover. He was, you know, and Guy Bourdain, you know, I liked, and Richard Avedon. Those are those are the kinds of photographers that when I moved to Hasselblad, I was looking at. So I had this box of these black and white prints, and so showed it to an art director, this art director at Columbia Records, and he loved him. He goes, oh, I want you to, uh, here, go do this portrait of this jazz artist. He did that. He said, oh, that's great. Okay, now I want you to do uh, the Jackson's album cover. <laughs> that's, that's quite the jump from one to the next, right? It's quite a leap because it's going to be like big production, lots of fancy cars, lots of fancy clothes, <laughs> color, you know, and I'd never really shot color film much before other than, you know, occasional Kodachrome mm -hmm. thing, but I never, so, you know, I did that and uh, we had the first photo session and the photos were good. My technique was horrible. <laughs> had to have a reshoot and the art director was very patient. He said, ah, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. We'll, you know, we'll make a dye transfer and we'll open it up in the dye transfer and, you know, it'll be fine. And, blah, 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 blah. and then uh, we did another shoot, which was perfect you know technique wise and he said yes yeah, good 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 and he was always supportive and and after it was all said and then he goes by the way when you get paid get a light meter <laughs> <laughs> boy <laughs> nice practical advice yes <laughs> uh, well what had happened was is working with polaroids instead of opening up a stop and a half i went down a stop oh. and a half and it was before fuji film so it was ectochrome and ectochrome, you can't put, you couldn't push process it. So it was just a mess. You get that milky blue color. Right? Uh, yeah. And, uh, but that art director kept giving me assignments for years. He was very supportive. And it was like. You showed him the light meter you bought the next time you saw him. Yeah. It was a guy named Tony Lane at Columbia Records. And he was really instrumental in, in me moving forward. They were very supportive. So I did that for a number of years. You know, I lived in L.A. for 10 years, sort of doing, doing that. You know, but it, it goes to, uh, I had a guest at one of the classes I teach, and he told the students, you know, whenever they ask you to do something, you just say yes, no matter what. And, you know, that's kind of what you do as a, if you're trying to be a freelance, freelance photographer. Freelance anything, that's what you do. Right? Yeah, if someone offers you the job and they say, uh, yeah, yeah, I do that. Right. <laughs> I mean, I had a job, uh, and the and this brilliant designer named Mick Haggerty. I did. I was doing the back cover photos of this band, and he had an idea, conceptual idea for the front cover. He goes, "So you ever shoot with an eight by ten camera?" Absolutely. <laughs> I had never laid hands on one in my life. That's so, quite a bluff. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So you know, you go, you rent it for a week. And you, like, make it work. And, of course, this is before the Internet, before you couldn't just, like, go watch some YouTube videos. You had to actually like, get your hands on one. You had to get your hands on one. You could, you know, you read about it. It's, yeah. it's all very straightforward. Yeah. Particularly if you take the picture, get it processed, and see what you did wrong and go back and do it again and try different lenses and whatnot. So, you know, that that's, you know, the rule of being a freelancer and Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you give yourself enough time to get the gear and practice. Right. right. So then uh, at what point do you start, do you uh, come out to New York? Well, I've been going to New York a lot. 
like I said, I was here for off and on for a couple of years in the 70s, back when uh, my girlfriend at the time had an apartment in the West Village for $250. Um, <laughs> in 19, uh, Gary Winogrand died, and we had become somewhat close, and he was very influential in my development of a, my personal creative process in the early 80s in Los Angeles. I met him at the farmer's market and then we started going around and making photographs together and talking and spending a lot of time together. And then he died and I was like, well, I think it's now time to go to New York because I kind of, that vision, his vision was very much here. And I said, I, you know, and I'd, when I was a freelance photographer, also you had to come back to New York because that's, this is where all the clients are. Mm primarily, all the magazine clients. and everything. So part of being a freelance photographer in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s was you had to make at least two trips to New York every year to just go around and meet people and try to get clients. And I've always liked New York a lot. So apartment rents were going up in L.A. I had to get a new apartment. And uh, I said, well, if I'm going to pay that much money, I could might as well live in New York. And then, you know, Gary died, and then I moved here. That was 1984. I decided to move here, and I moved here in 1985. Well, you guys moved, and, and at this point, isn't there a story? Do you get married right before you come out, or? I came out in, I might be a little confused on the exact years. I believe I came out in 1984, or maybe it was 85, and I met some people, and there, I, been going back and forth because I hadn't closed my office. I had a archival printing lab that I had in LA and I hadn't shut that down. So I was going back and forth and uh, this other person I know said, you know, there's this woman I want you to meet. I think you guys really like each other. So I had, had an assignment in Chicago for two weeks to photograph blues clubs for an airline magazine. And then I was going back to Los Angeles to finish packing to come back to New York. You know, I had, I had moved, but I hadn't brought any of my stuff. I still had a car and all this. You know, I had to close that up. So when I came back, this person said, you got to come over and meet my friend. And we met and we fell in love, got engaged probably four weeks later. And, you know, I convinced her by the way, to move uh, to I'm New moving York. to New York. Yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you. And, uh... and she... <laughs> you know, uh, thankfully said, okay, I'll move to New York with you. And so my wife, Meg Henson, came out here with me, with, uh, with our daughter, Coco. And so that was, uh, that was a very important hmm. thing. And uh, she writes about that in the That Year of Living right. essay. Right. Which also is available on Amazon. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> which I only found out because I was looking for the new SPQR book and I searched my name and there was the catalog from Lightwork. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just, just to back up a little bit, what, what was your time like with Gary Winogrand? What, what, did you, what do you think you came away with? Uh, how did it influence you? Um, the biggest influence was, was very simple. Is that, you know, we met at Farmer's Market and we used to go, it started out where we would just sit with each other in the morning having coffee. And, you know, one of the first things he said to me, he says, 
Well, the one thing I've noticed with photographers in LA is they're always waiting for a photo assignment, you know, and that's as a freelance photographer, you're always waiting for a photo assignment because, you know, you got to pay the rent. And, and there isn't an active arts street photography community in LA, at, particularly at that time. And he said, she says, the problem with that is that so many photographers never realize their own potential because they're always waiting for someone to tell them what to do. And I had been in a fairly deep, I'm not getting enough work depression. I remember at one point I showed my portfolio to the mailman because I couldn't get appointments to show my work, <laughs> oh, you know. Was this like he showed up at the door and you invited him in? Or? <laughs> yeah, or I came out, I said, oh, I got to show you my portfolio. Really, you know? <laughs> he, of course, he liked it, you know. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, and also, you know, I, that goes to uh, one thing that I tell people that study with me is that uh, you really have to like your own work. If you're going to do photography, you really have to love it because hmm. it's not an easy economic road to follow. No. Um, or as Leontine Price, the opera singer, said, I don't want to sound vain, but if you're going to do this, you do have to love the sound of your own voice. <laughs> um, and, you know, you got because you got to put everything in it. But so when Gary told me that, I started photographing every day on the streets of L.A. And people say, what are you shooting? I said, I'm shooting pictures of nothing. I'm just out making pictures. And uh, that turned my creative life around. And we would go, you know, I would go with him to county fairs and, you know, whatever. We'd walk around and take pictures. And I remember one time somebody got me a copy of Robert Frank's Cocksucker Blues <laughs> yeah. on video. And we had movie night to watch that. <laughs> and... Uh, I remember Gary's comment. He goes, "You call that a movie?" <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, he was an absolutist when it came to things because he mm. once also told me there was only one good movie ever made. All that jazz. <laughs> oh, so then, then you, um, you get married. You come out to New York, and you said uh, you were um, coming out for freelance work off and on, mm -hmm. and then, but then the 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 actual move. Did you have something set up? Did, were you well? No, I mean, I, you know, I, I said, well, let me get a job as a photo assistant. I'm moving to a new place. And the best way to kind of learn the way around the, the, com the commercial photo community is to work for somebody that's here doing it. So I did that for several years. And I also, in addition to that, I had still had my own clients for like record covers and some stuff. I had in Los Angeles in 79... I was hired to be the photography editor for the LA Weekly newspaper, the startup. I was one of the startup team because, you know, there was no village voice in LA. There was, there was nothing like that. And so we started that. It was hugely successful. And that was basically the photo editor at that meant you're the photographer. You take every picture that's in it. That was how the term photo editor actually translated in that particular case. And I did that for a year, but that's kind of, backtracking a little bit mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah yeah uh yeah i was here as a photo assistant and you know for a photographer that did a lot of business assignments and corporate things and then you know i started working there was a magazine black enterprise which was very supportive to for me to do like corporate executive type portraits you know they assign me stuff almost every week for several years um because there was, there was a great deal of 
uh, segregation and racism in the industry because photography is a kind of a privileged career. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's an activity for the leisure class, mm. right. in, particularly in terms of, you know, making money. Yeah, that's been true since the beginning, I think, of photography, especially in the beginning, right? It was people who could uh, afford to figure it out and uh, learn how to use all the chemicals and things like that. And even early on, um, the women who got into photography, they were often uh, the wives of wealthy people. And once their kids went to school, they were kind of allowed to pick it up and and make photographs, things like that. So it's it's been like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then if as you go to these magazines and knock on the doors, there's like... It's a bit of a clubhouse, right? There's like very much, yeah. And yeah. you know, as I say, we're talking 30 years ago. It's, you know, it's better now. I mean, better. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> but it's not certainly not perfect. You spoke earlier that wait, was it Meg that had an apartment downtown before, or was it someone else? Someone else. Okay, <laughs> someone else. All right, yeah, that yeah. wasn't Meg. Yeah, okay. So, but, but. Now I know that you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you come here to New York and you move to Harlem, right? Correct. Yeah, and so that's uh, that's a huge move in and of itself. It's not being downtown, not being in the village scene, but coming to, you know, 1980s Harlem. And, well, and on a number of levels. I mean, it was the first time I ever lived in a, in a uh, inner city black community because when I grew up in Berkeley, you know, there was one other black family in our neighborhood two right. blocks away. Um, I used to go to Oakland a lot because I was involved with the Panthers. But, you know, so we we come to New York and uh, the first place we lived was a neighborhood called Windsor Terrace. We got an apartment there and the hostility was just shocking. Mm. Um, And uh, so we moved from there after about six months. Wow, that is short. Yeah. Um, wow. And this was 1985. You know, it's gentrified now, and it's you know seemingly seemingly better. Mm. I mean, I know two delightful people that live there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my wife is looking for an apartment, and she sees an ad in the newspaper for an apartment in Harlem. And we kind of wanted to live in Harlem. I mean, we did. And there was an ad for this apartment that, like, uh, it was a nice big apartment, but the way it was written, it was like, well, there's a, you know, there's a key fee of, you know, several thousand dollars to get this apartment. And my wife, who's a fighter and an activist, she called and said, how can you ask for a key fee for an apartment rental? That's that's wrong. And they go, oh, no, that's not a Kifi, that's the purchase price. She goes, oh, we'll be right up. Uh, and so we went up, and there was only one other person looking at it. And we told the other person, oh, I don't think I'd want to live here. And they go, yeah, we wouldn't either. And they left, and then we said, we'll take it. <laughs> you know, and we got our parents to, you know, chip in and come up with the money to get it. And, nice. you know, that was, we still live in the same place. That's great. It's been a long time living in one apartment. I've never, we both, me and my wife, have lived in this place longer than we lived anywhere else in our life. A common New York City story, I think, for people who move here. You find everything around that you need, and you're only a subway ride or a cab ride away from some other reality, right? Right, and 
it's hard to move here because, you know, every 30 days, everything goes up in price. Yeah. yeah. So you get locked in. So you get, you know, so, you know, we it almost would be impossible for us to move. To, to sell and buy or. To sell right. and buy or right. sell and rent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only trouble with that is, you know, you get a lot of stuff when you don't move. That's the beauty of moving. Is it is. It forces you to get rid of the crap. It yeah. so does. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the longest I've ever lived in one spot was 11 years. I told my wife that I said, I never want to move again. And then then when we packed up and we threw away bags and bags, like, all right, this isn't so bad. <laughs> we can start over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you started to talk about this, this series of work you did, 2007, 2008, that your, your, your wife Meg wrote mm-hmm. about. Oh, wait, I, got, we got, oh, I want to jump in ahead of time. because <laughs> Yeah, because part of now you're... You're now in Harlem, and uh, I'm now upstairs from House's Barbershop. A, well, that, but also you're going out on the street with the Hasselblad and making these portraits too, right? Yes, and yes. which leads to House's Barbershop, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, I'd been photographing on the street with the Hasselblad a little bit, and then when I came here, I started photographing a lot on the street with it because there was more people. You know, because I was very interested in portraits, and in Los Angeles, there's not a lot of people on the street, so. You, it doesn't behoove you to just lug a medium format camera around all day and yeah, run into no, no. one or two people. Um, and people respond to that camera, too. I mean, I, so I was just out this weekend with my Hasselblad, but I, I had a 250 lens on it, so it was even more like standing out and kind of crazy. But people were like, what is that? You know, people, I mean, or if, and I imagine making portraits, you know, walking around in the 80s in Harlem, like with that camera. People are going to take you more seriously than if you like pull out a little happy snap camera or something, right? Well, in the '80s, there weren't happy snap cameras. Uh, I mean, there were like like the cartridge camera that I mentioned earlier. You know, you look oh, right. you look the, serious. You like the, you know, there's someone doing something yeah, I mean, important, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, there was that that photographer whose name escapes me, who's been photographing with the four by five Polaroid. Oh yeah, there was just a there was, there was just a profile on him recently. Um, who was who's been walking around Harlem since before I got here. But yeah. But he, but his whole thing is he, and he even talks about as he wears a costume. He's like, he's trying to portray, like I'm, I'm still one of those news photographers that you see in the old movies. Right. Or, or that not even in old movies. Like I was just watching a Netflix TV series mm-hmm. that was set in the fifties and sixties and, or sorry, set in the forties and fifties. And they have people going around with their graph and flash bulbs going off and he dresses that way. And he, you know, he, so he's, He's making himself into... I think his name is Lewis. That sounds right. So he's making himself a little bit of a spectacle in that he's going around with this old-fashioned looking camera and dressing a certain way. And so it's the whole persona. Whereas, you know, you're a Hasselblad walking around and I assume you weren't like dressing as a photographer, quote unquote. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, you know, and the Hasselblad is, with the 80 millimeter lens, is kind of a nice compact. Yeah, it's It's a compact big camera. Exactly, it's beautiful. And, uh... You know, although I had a hand grip and a flash on it because, you know, I was in that Diane Arbus vibe right. <laughs> at the time uh, and using, you know, like, you know, slow speed film. Mm. But I would walk around and I'd also do like some cityscapes and other stuff. But I was very much still in the try to photograph every day whenever you could. And I also wanted to discover this new community I was living in. And for me, the best way was to document it. 
mm-hmm. you know, and I, and a lot of what I was doing was documenting it through the faces of the people that live there. And, and like a lot of New York City neighborhoods, you slowly people get to see you and know you. And if you're if you're doing something like that, like an activity like photographing and being on the street and mm-hmm. you know, ask stopping people and asking you to talk to them and photograph them. Pretty soon, even if people don't know your name, they're gonna they go, oh, there's the photographer. Right. And with the commercial work I was doing with magazines and album covers, I would often photograph celebrities in the neighborhood, in the, and I would employ a lot of people to work with me from the neighborhood. You know, like I'd be out on the median, you know, with a generator and strobes, and oh, wow. you know, I'd have three assistants and a couple of people that I hire from the neighborhood to do security, you know, that I would, I would hire the, the, the guys that for whatever reason would be standing on the corner all day and all night Uh doing whatever they do. (laughs) I would hire them to do my security. Yeah. Cause clearly they knew what (laughs) to do. They made me feel safe. (laughs) Um, but, uh, so yeah, there was certain amount of that. And, it was different then because it's before the internet and the fact that what's somebody going to do with a photograph at that juncture? They're going to, oh, I don't know, maybe it'll get in the newspaper, but ha- the only way it'll get in the newspaper is if there's a reason. Right, so a story. That didn't concern people yeah. too much. You know, uh, maybe it'll get in a book. Well, who knows? You know, not that many people get photo books. So, it was different. Now, with social media, people are very concerned about that. It's, I, I think it's harder to shoot people on the street because, what, you're going to put this on Twitter? You're going to put this on Facebook? Uh, they're less comfortable with that. I've, I've found, I think, oftentimes I've, you know, say, let me go back to my roots and I'll go out with the Hasselblad or the Mamaya, mm-hmm. you know, the Mamaya 6. And it's, it's different. There's just a different vibe. Totally. And what, on times I've gone back to Los Angeles, there's a different vibe there, but for a different reason. Because uh, the, the, the paparazzi have made it so difficult for people oh, yeah. out there. That if you, you have, work for TMZ, who the hell are you? Or, you if know. you have a professional camera and you're out, there's a lot of hostility. Just like, what do you do? Before, when I lived in L.A., no one cared. Yeah, they, that's when they were calling people. Oh, I mean, I'm they, sure they still do, but that was when they were really like, okay, we're going to be at this restaurant. Please show up and photograph us. Well, not even celebrities. I'm mostly just people. No, I'm saying that's the difference, is that back then it was like an invitation to the to them to come photograph you right. more, and now it's, oh, we're chasing you down the street and going yeah. through your garbage. and Yeah, and uh, like I read about a photographer who had become quite successful and had a studio in Venice, you know, he was a celebrity photographer. He ultimately had to shut down his studio because the paparazzis oh, would hang out. knew about it and they would just camp out mm. in front of his studio because eventually a celebrity is going to show up because that was his business. Right. Uh, and he said it just was like unworkable. Mm. And that was that was all post or after the Internet. You know, it was all after the Internet and just the distribution. Like, you know, you can take an ugly picture of somebody and then that person's got, you know, 10,000 followers and all these people see it. Yeah. I, I think that ties back into people's paranoia is that a lot of, they imagine if they've seen or if they consume stuff online, that if they see these street photo, you know, street photographers work, a lot of it, there are photographs of people looking awkward or that in between moment and they're thinking, oh, you know, 
you're trying to make a photograph. They don't imagine you're trying to make a beautiful photograph of them because you think they're interesting and amazing and want to make a photograph of them. They're thinking there's a suspicion there that that you want to photograph them to somehow put them up for ridicule because no matter what your intentions are, if you look at the comments and under things like the most horrible things get said uh, on mm-hmm. social media platforms, right? Yeah, right. it doesn't matter the intent anymore. The it, uh, comments are just unfiltered and they bring out the, the worst impulses in people. Mm-hmm. You must yeah. see it a lot working for, at the New York Times, right? Well, I try to avoid comments. <laughs> There's a lot of opinions out there that mm. I don't particularly wish to engage in. Yeah. Although, you know, the business of of running a newspaper, they have to engage them because... Of course, you want people... Otherwise, people aren't going to come back and yeah. participate. That, that's all part of traffic. Yeah. It's all yeah. part of audience engagement. <laughs> oh, there you go. I knew there was a correct term. <laughs> but uh, now I'm hoping this is a very smooth transition to saying that uh, you're li- you happen to be living above, uh, right above this barber shop, and uh, now people in the neighborhood know, hey, this guy's a photographer. And what happens? The proprietor of the shop said, "Oh, maybe you'd come into the shop and take some pictures because I'm worried I might lose my lease." And I've been walking by the shop, looking in, and it was for a photographer. It was really beautiful inside. It was just had, it had a real ambiance. Uh, yeah, huge and, glass windows. Huge, Glass windows and and a dynamic range of ages and it was just a classic place, but it was a little intimidating because it's also narrow and, and intimate. So he invited me in, and uh, another photographer friend of mine, Hilton Braithwaite, had had told me, you know, he was looking at the street portraits, and he, you know, he said, you need to go inside because you know everybody's shooting on the streets in Harlem. You need to get inside and see people's lives indoors. And so these two things kind of happened simultaneously. And uh, so, you know, I went in the shop and, you know, it was not a place to use flash. So I had to like work on my available light technique. Hmm. So no more slow speed film. No more slow speed film. You just have to, you, 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 you pick your, your aperture and your shutter speed and you process it and you figure out what works best. And you process the film accordingly. Mm. The people who were processing my film at the time generally did it by inspection. Yeah, so that's forgivable. I mean, it has a lot of, not forgivable, that's a, has a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Forgiven snow? <laughs> latitude. I latitude, say that, yeah, right. there's, a lot, there's latitude built into that system if they're doing a good job of doing it by inspection. Because they go, oh. You know. Yeah, that old inspection system was you, you, you worked with this dark, dim green light. Yes. And you you use a tank, a dip and dunk probably, and then you pulled the film out and you checked it every once little in a little while and uh, hoped you didn't fog the film and, <laughs> and then worked that way. Yeah, I learned it because Gary Winogrand, that's how he yeah. would process his film. And All that's the way where to I the end, yeah. learned it because I was, he had a, a dark room in his studio in, in Beverly Hills. And, you know, I used to hang around there and, uh, and work with one of his colleagues who was in dark room. But he taught me that. So that's sort of how I had approached it. And, and also, when you've been shooting Tri-X film for many years, it's pretty straightforward exposure. You know, it's like outdoors in the sun, 250 at eight, and develop accordingly. Yeah, so you had a tech, you knew what it was gonna work. You know, it inside it was a little different, but it was like a 30th at five, six. You're gonna be in the ballpark. Hmm. 
And you're photographing mostly in, during the day, too, right? Mostly during the when day. When there's light coming in through those big windows. And yeah, and if it's nighttime, then you just do 2-8 at a, th- you know, yeah. you hold do whatever you can do. Yeah. As, as, as still as you can hold the camera and as wide as you can open the lens. Hmm. Would you lock the mirror up and then release the shutter? No. That's how I work with that Hasselblad. It's yeah, like, that's good technique for vibration. <laughs> well, yeah, I lock up the mirror first. Then I take the picture so that the I don't have that mirror going ka-chunk during when the exposure gets Oh, made. yeah. I, I have to be looking yeah. through the I'm camera. I'm not making portraits, so that's why yeah. it's, I was able to like pull that oh, off. Right. But, uh, oh, you were doing the landscape work. Or the, yeah, right. when I'm yeah. doing landscape work. Right? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could still do it. I, you know, I, got, I got my technique down with like the right finger pops the mirror up, and then like right afterwards I hit the button. So it's like sort of like a combo thing. So I could, I could do portraits that way too. But Yeah, there's – I love – Particularly like medium format, uh, waist level photographers' techniques. Right. They're various. Yeah, yeah. Because I had a whole Hasselblad wind, and as you wind <laughs> it over, then the finger hits the, the shutter button. Ooh. As soon as it gets over, like, because sometimes with portraits, you'll be walking around on the street and you'll see a moment and you have no time to, to interact because it'll change that moment. Because one of my favorite pictures that I took of a, a young guy on Sunset Strip, I literally looked, and I remember turning down and looking in the viewfinder and racking the focus, and it was the perfect picture, and I just, like, wound, and it was a one-shot, just boom. But that's, you know, with particularly with the media, with the backwards and all that, there's... Yeah, you, know, you, get, you get a technique down, and you, can, you know it starts becoming second nature. You know, and even with small thirty-five cameras, I mean, I remember Gary used to have this thing that he used to do, where he'd mess with his hair, like he'd have the camera up, but to distract the people in front of him, he'd like like this, so they right. they would look up as, well, what's he doing with his hair, and he would, you know. <laughs> Be photographing them, yeah. That's you know. great. And of course, you see in the films where he does that thing where he like, right after the shutter goes off, he also like takes the camera away and like looks at like it. Like wiggles it around. Yeah, like, oh, like what what's is this, this thing? Yeah. Right. How does it get in my hand? Oh, know? yeah, I've done that one too. So. Yeah. It's like, what yeah. just happened? I don't know. Like you're trying to fix your camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's all, I mean, you know, we're digressing slightly, but there's all kinds of humorous texts. Richard Avedon, for instance, who I studied his work just obsessively for years and years, in the 70s when I was in New York, I'd seen the, one of his shows at Marble Gallery and it like blew my mind and so I just dug into his work and went to all of his openings all over the country because I was traveling on the road, borderline stalking the guy. But <laughs> I even like got into his studio to see what he, how he did it, you know. Um, but he was photographing these royals in, in England and he did this portrait, and they have this just grief-stricken look on their face. And, he, like, he was the big camera with a cable release where he would actually walk up and be right next to the subjects with the cable release. You know, he'd sit, have his assistants and people set the focus. But he wanted them interacting with him. And he knew they were dog people. And so he was, you know, taking the pictures, and he, he, said, and he sort of had this sort of sad look on his face and they said are you okay you feeling all right he goes no i was like on my way in here i uh there was an accident and a, and, and a car ran over a dog outside and they had that expression and he just click 
Oh man, he you gave know, them their motivation. He gave them their motivation, and he, you know, and and I remember one art director told me he said the difference between your work and his work is his work is all about control. <laughs> and I remember I I don't know if I had a Hasselblad then, but I asked him when I somehow got convinced them to let me into his studio. Uh, I said, do you ever shoot four by five? He goes, why? There's Hasselblad. Okay. And there was slow speed film. There's Hasselblad and Panatomic X. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there was in that interview or not interview, the recording of the talk that Gary Winogrand does at Rice University. He talks, he's like, if you, if I use the right film and my Leica 35, I can go up against four by five. Unless we're making gigantic enlargements, there's no reason. Like I can make just as sharp, just as clarity. You know, blah 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 blah. So sort uh, of. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I I don't know. You know, he was talking about probably like magazine work or something. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I the thing that that I the really really got to people with large format, and I was just at a I was on an artist talk this week and. Somehow, the thing that's kept up with that look of the large format look is there's a real people have a hard time getting away from that stilted, um, you know, like you can just you can tell everything's done on a tripod at a certain way and Mm -hmm. everything's perfect and or these like diorama kind of photographs of things and they they. The the descriptive quality is amazing, but at a certain point, like all right, already these photographs are all they get kind of boring. They're like they're all made the same kind of way of like ah, I'm doing the the grandiose monumental large format photograph of something, you know. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, I think if you don't work with a small camera every once in a while, you're gonna get just in a rut with that that look and that approach to whatever you walk in front of, you know. Yeah, and it's so much gear. Yeah. <laughs> And and there's also this thing of like with medium format, you you can have all these rolls of film in your pocket. You can keep going. You you're not afraid to try one thing and then try another and then try another. If you're going out with twenty sheets of film for the day, you're gonna like get it right. You know what I mean? Twenty sheets and ten film holders. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and a pack mule and uh, <laughs> everything else. But uh, so house, you get invited into this barber uh, yeah, shop, so I, and now it's, and it's just downstairs from my apartment, literally. So you know, and ideal location, ideal. And you know, I started making pictures, and the first couple of rolls, I'm seeing pictures like none I've taken before that mm. really struck a nerve with me. So I just kept going there, and I photographed there for five or six years. Just go down for a couple hours, take pictures, and. You know, and it was nice. It was pleasant. The owner, you know, he always, any anyway, ever said, what's he taking pictures for? He said, he's taking them for me. Don't worry about it. That helps um, a lot, right? Uh, yeah. And I move around, and it was uh, a pretty wonderful opportunity to, you know. And it was easy because it was downstairs. Yeah. And it was open six days a week. Mm. You know, and that, like I tell my students often in terms of personal projects, you got to come up with ones that are easy for you to do. Because yeah, what do you have access to? Yeah. You have access to, you you don't have to coordinate all these things to make them happen. Yeah. I mean, I remember one point after I saw the work of a photographer named Chauncey Hare, who did mm-hmm. Interior yeah, yeah, America, Hare, yeah. uh, I came up with, I was living in L.A., and I, and I wanted to photograph local musicians in their homes with a 4 by 5 camera. Well, to do that, I had to get the four by five camera with the nice 90 millimeter lens. Mm -hmm. I had to get a couple of big strobe packs because 
you need light. So every time I wanted to do one of those, it became like a big production. And I maybe did two or three dozen of those pictures, and it just, you know, it's like, you know, it's so much work to make this happen. So Yeah, and then people cancel on you or according to times. So. Yeah, and you got to get somebody to help you, you know. And uh, so, like I say, this was the opposite of that, where it's just, it's just there. You go down day after day because going back to what what – Win and Grant had told me it's like photographers don't make enough photographs to realize their own potential. And also, uh, another thing he said is photography is a process of failure. You know, the old expression if you get one good shot out of 36, that means you have 35 failures. Right. And, and it's also like a musical instrument that you, if the, the more you practice, you know, the, the better work you get. And particularly with street photography, because you also have to develop how to work the choreography of the street because you kind of have to become invisible and that takes a lot of doing it and a lot of moving around and knowing how to anticipate and you can't just i'm gonna go do street photography today but but when you were photographing the the barbershop that's a different kind of negotiation then right i mean you're you're having conversations. You're you're not hidden. Right? I'm not hidden. I'm not, I'm not having too many conversations. Mm. I would just sit there quietly with my waist level camera and taking pictures or walking around. And, and you're not using flash, so that's, not using you're flash. not drawing attention to yourself in the you same know, I, way. I talk to the owner or the barbers, right. so that would give a certain authority to my presence. And as you said earlier, a lot of people in the neighborhood knew me, and so there's that guy. He's mm. He's all, you know, he's always in the barbershop taking pictures or he's out taking pictures or, you know, he's uh, he's on the median with some celebrity, celebrity taking pictures. Yeah. Got the big, you know, mobile home dressing rooms and all of that stuff. So <laughs> uh, and when you were when you were photographing this, did you, did you have some sense that you were uh, preserving something that might be disappearing in terms of tradition and culture? And oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. Not so much disappearing, but something that had been there for a long time. It wasn't long after we lived in the neighborhood into the 90s where, you know, it became more apparent that uh, things were going to be disappearing. You know, kind of don't think about that a lot. I mean, yeah, it's best to just kind of, to me, you just make the photographs. You you, you live in 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 the moment and you just try to do it a lot you know, and sort out that those larger issues later. Yeah, when I look at those photographs, I mean, certainly you're, it's a very intimate portrayal of that place. I mean, you after you get to the end of the book, you feel as if you are a local, like as if that was your barbershop you're going to. There's, there's that level of, of detail, which I think you could only get from those years of spending time there and becoming sensitive to what's happening and being there when all these different things happen from the young kids, the young boys going in and getting their hair cut and to the older men, you know, mm-hmm. but I was struck less with, I, I, there was less of a feeling of, of nostalgia or, or of like preservation, even though, you know, I'd say there's some photographs of, of signs and things on the wall, you know, there's um, that, kind of date dated a little bit i mean uh, too. golden gloves 1987 yeah there's <laughs> yeah there's some stuff like that but but the feeling is more 
uh, timeless in a way, in, in, in the sense of it's there's this real masculine energy and this feeling of this place where these men come together and, you know, these, these rituals happen that have been happening for, you know, hundreds of years. Right. Right. And so that, that, that kind of thing, that's what really strikes me about the photographs is, is that nature of, even though you're getting this intimate portrayal of a very specific place, this barbershop, this barbershop in Harlem, there's and you come to recognize the figures of the barbers and you know they become these real characters there's this other thing happening which is this more timeless like tradition of uh, you know masculinity black masculinity community and all of that that comes out in the photographs yeah and they also have a lot of the historical pictures on the walls which i sort of feeds into that absolutely you know people that are long gone or you know or old musicians or you know uh, people like Rosa, pictures of Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. So that sort of pushes it back in time a little bit. Yeah, from the time that the photographs were made. From the time made. that the photographs were actually made. Yeah, which helps. I mean, the, in, um, people like to point out that there's uh, that Walker Evans photograph of the model... T or is it a Model One or Model? There's a photograph, but with the time that he made the photograph, that that car was already uh, an ancient car. It's a, but you you know now when he made it, you're like, oh, he was photographing an antique. Right. Now we look at the photograph, and if you're not cognizant of that, you might think, oh, that was like the car of the time, 1918. Exactly, you know, not knowing yeah, it was when 1940. Evans, exactly, not knowing when Evans made the photograph, and the same thing could happen in time. Someone might pick up your book mm-hmm. 20 years from now, and they'd be like, oh, you know. One was, you know, the, yeah, the, that, the, that, that the cover time. picture is a is, is an example. This is no idea what yeah absolutely. year that is, yeah. and the guy's style is like old school and yeah, with that hat and and yeah. if, and even the barber chairs, which barber chairs haven't changed that much over time. I mean, maybe no. I'm sure if you are in the industry, you're like, oh, look, they added all these features, but the no. look of them is pretty much the same. No, they they don't. My daughter owns a barber shop, so I know oh, all okay. about the barber chairs. Ah, interesting. You could probably order brand new chairs that are meant to look like they're from the fifties, anyway, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But and sort of going back to you know talking about being in- invisible, having been there for so long, I recall it was almost like being invisible there because so many of the people were just used to seeing me in there. Mm. You know, so there was a certain invisibility that I think came about over time. Yeah. You know, even though I was, you know, in there with a big medium format camera. and Yeah, you became part of the social scene there. It's like, ah, oh, the photographer's here. Well, you know, he's talking to the barber and whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, also, a lot of the pictures are taken from a seated position just because mm-hmm. it's more comfortable and <laughs> it's more invisible. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you have that camera in your lap. And, and you're right. also not going to be in the mirror, reflected in the big uh, mirror. Yeah, that's the challenge for readers, to find the <laughs> photographer. That's right. <laughs> and you can do that by buying the book. On uh, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Amazon.com, only $30. <laughs> right. uh, 29 from, plus tax. That's right. Yeah. Out and, from and SPQR course, editions. Yeah. <laughs> it was part of the... the the book release, the mm-hmm. book release party, and all. It's a, it's the five edition, the five books, and uh, of course, Kai is in there as well. They're right now they're stacked on top of each other because Jeffrey and I are doing an exchange. So I gave right. him my book about face picturing Tampa, and he's hopefully handing <laughs> over that copy of House. I just, ha- I have a student in my class, um, uh, African American woman who is trying to 
do a project talking about uh, specifically all of these beauty products that are targeted towards black women because there's like creams to lighten your skin to all the cr- stuff with different ways to control hair and do all these crazy things and she's trying to understand it and, and talk about it and um, she also wants to go to beauty salons and anyways I showed her your book yesterday and she was like oh man I, I, I could only dream that I'd be able to do a beauty salon kind of version of this, like just being able to spend time in that community. And um, I think it's it's remarkable to have those all together. I, it's, I'm happy to be amongst the, that my book will be associated with it by proxy, so. Mm. But uh, now I think it's safe to transition <laughs> to what Michael was trying to get to earlier, although it's a big jump in time now, because uh, I should just say you were, you were got this job working at the New York Times uh, soon after that, or, or when did you start at the time? Uh, the New York Times asked me if I wanted to be an editor there in 1998. Okay, so after, much after this. Yeah, and these pictures were pretty much completed by 1993. Okay. Um, You're in several collections, right? The Museum of Modern Art. The Baltimore Museum of Art, the George Eastman House, the right. Houston Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, is that some of this work as well, then? Baltimore, it's this work. The barbershop, right. Museum of Modern Art is a combination, but they have one or two of these pieces. They have two of these pieces. And, of course, everyone who has these record albums in their collection that happen to have That's your right. cover portrait That's on them. That's right. Like that Jackson 5, right? The Jacksons. Oh, the Jacksons. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. When they moved from Motown to Columbia, the name Jackson 5 could not move with them. Uh-huh. Uh, so it became the Jacksons. Uh, Destiny is the album. Uh, and there's another. The album I did on the 8x10 camera was a rock band called Gamma 2. And it's been included in several books of best album covers of all time. Wow. There you go. I'm going to um, look for that now. And it's a very conceptual. Uh, it's shark's fins cutting through a lawn. And there's a woman sitting on a chaise, and they're headed for the woman. <laughs> and this was all done before Photoshop, so we had to have the shark's fins built. We had to cut up the lawn. Oh. And then do maybe, all... Maybe the first lawn sharks ever made. <laughs> it was the lawn sharks, exactly. Um, and then that year was, I think, 78 or 79 or 80, I forget. But at the time there was a lot of controversy about violence against representations of violence against women in album covers because the Rolling Stones had released an album called Black and Blue, which they put a billboard on Sunset Boulevard of a woman tied up and hanging from ropes, just brutally beaten, bruised up. Mm. And there was a lot of justifiable controversy over that Mm -hmm. against the record industry. And when we first turned the project in, there was just a, a, a model's legs on the chaise. I remember we had to hire a leg and foot model that was like, you know, $100 a toe, I remember, is what the rate was. <laughs> um, and, the, and the record company said, ah, it's giving us the funny bad feeling because we've just been in these battles. So we said, all right. So we had to go back. And what we did was we took the film, the 8x10 film, and we went back. We, didn't, we couldn't go back to the lawn because, you know, so we just shot a chaise with a man sitting on the edge so his arm was there. So but we put the 8x10 transparency in the back of the view camera. So we just 
adjusted it up. Yeah. And we just shot the chaise just on, on concrete. Hmm. But we lined it up perfectly in the view camera. <laughs> and then at the printers, they stripped one chaise out and put the other one in. <laughs> but you had to get the toe model back. That's right. Yes, we had to get the toe model back. <laughs> so now the sharks were coming for a couple, not just for her. So that was the idea. Exactly. <laughs> and there was a lot of, like, on the inside cover, we used to do these, this process. I mean, we're digressing into pre-Photoshop days where when you had to make these collages or montages, you had to literally do it in the darkroom, in the enlarger. Yeah, a la Jerry Ulsman. Yeah, I, it's, does he use uh, uh, Amberlith and Rubylith and stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, with, that, with, the, with the registration yeah, pins. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so we used to do that a lot. And when I had the archival printing lab, there was a lot of big music photographers. You do these photo shoots with 100 rolls of film, and like the bands would pick which face of themselves they would like best. So we, we'd have to combine these things where everyone's face looked perfect. Yeah. And yeah. that was always done, you know, yeah, so people like to think that uh, this is a Photoshop revolution and everything, but people were demanding these sorts of things all along. I mean, yeah, and just was, had to, it was just harder to do. I always it was tell my really students hard to do. why you know why the mask in Photoshop is red <laughs> because that was the color of the ruby lips. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so we were. I mentioned the New York Times, right. but you've been there since '98, then, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I, you want to say much? I, I'd rather talk about your photographs, but you want to say something about uh, what you do there, just so we well, know? Well, I'm a photography editor there. They asked me if I want to be an editor there, and uh, the record industry was kind of taking a dive and mm. for a variety of other reasons. Business had fallen off tremendously, and so I said, well, okay, I'll be a photo editor. I'd been a photo editor at the LA Weekly years ago, decades ago but this was actually being an editor and not being a photographer right uh and i had a really good time i mean they sort of said okay what section would you like to do and i went through the papers for a couple of days and at that time in the 90s there was a section called house and home which had a big photo budget very big photo i looked at it, i said they use a lot of photographs and they use really nice photographers to do interiors or to do landscapes or they're probably shooting large format and stuff yeah. well it was all medium format oh really oh, that's or, or large yeah yeah but, but mostly medium mostly two and a quarter interiors are mostly two and a quarter huh. uh six by seven primarily interesting and i said i'll do that and i said i will do that job for five years and i was working with a brilliant editor there and we had we had a ball you know, we had a quarter of a million dollars a year to spend on photography, which, you know. Wow. Yeah. It's not like that anymore in the newspaper <laughs> business, <laughs> let me just say. And uh, we had a lot of fun. And so then I transitioned to a different job there, which I've enjoyed. And uh, they, they've been very supportive. It's not the comfortable business that newspaper jobs were in the 20th century where, you know, you got that job, you were good. Mm. You know, it's rapidly changing and there's a lot of insecurity. Mm. And, you know, the whole audience engagement and the internet and all that has created a whole different sort of thing. So it's, it's different. Yet there's opportun- different sorts of opportunities that are nice. Yeah. You went from the music industry, which went through this radical yeah, revolution. I, I specialize in, in, yeah, exactly. in so businesses that are... 
<laughs> declining. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know. And uh, now you just mentioned teaching, so. Uh. <laughs> uh, so now we're into the 2000s, and um, I, I don't know how much you want to say about it, but you wound up working on this project where you're photographing every day, right? Yeah, it, it ties to the New York Times because I was I'd been working at the Times, and I'd stopped photographing because it was a full-time pretty busy job and I didn't really photograph that much mm. um, and then in 2008 I was diagnosed with cancer and I had to have that treated and whenever you sort of come up against that you ask yourself you know why am I here because there's a chance I won't be yeah and I said to myself the reason I'm here is to be a photographer and the reason I have this job is to actually so i can be a photographer and so uh i had to get and some being a photographer is like uh i know tom likes to say this and i've heard it before is this it's a it's a verb you have to be photographing he's not it's not like a an honor that's bestowed upon you exactly. if you're a photographer it means you're photographing exactly and so uh we had to get a mortgage to get a a cancer treatment and so uh I said, off the top of this, I'm going to buy a expensive digital camera so I can photograph every day. And my wife, Meg, she said, you know, you got to get out and you got to do stuff. You can't just sit here. And so uh, I started photographing every day. And when I went back to work, I would photograph every day. When, I was in, when I'd have my lunch break, I would photograph every day. Uh, I'd photograph on the subway going to and from work. I'd the offices are in Times Square, so I had a lot of photographs from the Times Square area, but I would just shoot every day. And digital, there's a great convenience for that in the sense of, you know, every day you can go home and edit, you know, a thousand pictures that you shot. Um, and with the, the full frame cameras, you know, the, the they have better qualities than the not full frame cameras. And, uh, so I shot that and then I got into a whole digital printing thing. Cause you know, I've always been a big on printmaking, you know, and I got like this small Epson printer that had five channels. And then, so I replaced the, the ink channels with five shades of gray with, uh, archival pigments or whatever where I had to actually fill yeah, all yeah, the cartridges squeeze in the cartridge squeeze yeah. in the ink in the cartridge and there was the prints were actually lovely and uh so then I was doing that and then uh, uh I showed them to Jeffrey Hoon at, at up at Lightwork and he loved them and he said well let's do a show and uh and one of those beautiful contact sheet catalogs mm. and and that's how that was done and and my wife wrote a really moving essay in the in the beginning of it. And, and that's called That Year of Living. That Year of Living. Right. And, I mean, you were photographing every day because you weren't sure just how much longer you'd have to photograph, right? I mean, that was about photographing as, as much as possible in the unknown, right? Well, it was, it was more about going back to the process of photographing every day. Because if you're shooting on the street, you really need to try and photograph every day because of that, that choreography that you have to be a master at. And uh, it, was, it was more just the motivation. It's like, 
this is what I came to New York to do. And it, it, and it also goes back a little bit to Gary Winogrand's work because those Sixth Avenue streets were where many of the pictures of his that I admired were taken. So I would be walking up and down this same yeah. place. Um, and so that was, you know, going back to the motherland mm. of street photography. So, for so it was, it brought some clarity, this, this event in your life in terms of what you wanted to do and what you should be doing. Yeah. Or motivation to mm -hmm. like, you know, that just because I had become a photo editor, I could still make photographs regularly and I wanted to. So. Well, we often hear, uh, I mean, and you watch some movie or see something and someone comes up and they say, you know, carpe diem and this idea of, you know, living, you know, living as if you, you're aware of your mortality. And there's something about, there's something about everything else in life that takes us away from that. Or, you know, like there's, there's, you start off by brushing your teeth in the morning and you're in a routine and, or shaving, but you shave, you you do the, all these routines. And the next thing you know, like the rest of the, your day gets like, oh, next, now you're at lunch. Now you're at this. And there's, it's, it's comfortable to be in, in a routine and, uh, and by photographing or choosing to photograph every day, you're introdu you're introducing another routine that can't be routine because it, it, it forces you to like be aware of what's going on around you. It forces you to try to access this other part of your brain where you're, you know, trying to be hyper aware and be an observer and, um, and it's difficult and maybe, you know, life events, whatever they are, if it's sometimes people, maybe it's moving, maybe it's a, a relationship breaking up, or maybe it's some health issue, something can bring you back to, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I, I didn't realize it, but I've been stuck in, I've been stuck in the routine mode, and I'm got away from the other thing, which is important. The, mm -hmm. That's, that's not just the, the everyday, but getting back to making work and, and doing the thing that I think is critically important. And also, for me at the time on a fitness level, it was very, very helpful. Therapeutic, yeah. Physically therapeutic because photographing on the street with a big camera is physically challenging because you're like jogging a couple hours every day. You know, you're moving around and you're, you know, you're moving around with a, a visual concentration as well as the physical concentration. And so I think as a healing process, that was extremely helpful. No, I mean, yeah, it had to be. You know, because I've never been a big one for going to the gym or, you know, doing any of that stuff. But this was like that, like every day, just go work, working out. You know, back to the digital, one of the beauties of the digital format, which I myself kind of prefer film, but digital is, is fine and dandy. But the whole, I could go down onto the subway and have a completely different ISO that oh, right. when I come out into like the contrasty sun canyons mm. because you would either have to take one film out like if you're shooting ISO 200 outside you got to go down on the subway you got to have 800 to 1600 so you can't do that with film on the same camera although I've been doing it in the more recent work with the with the film Minolta I've been using but you know you take different types of pictures that's you take the, yeah the pictures on the subway are a little fuzzy right <laughs> which is fine it's it's that's the, the magic of photography they, yeah you, you, you work with the limitations you work with the limitations and you create images that are different yeah I'd, and I, I don't want to lose the fact that this was a collaboration with your wife this project 
in terms of her writing about the work. Uh, the essay for the catalog, the essay. The right. catalog essay was a collaboration. I was right. doing the work pretty much solo. Is it right if I read a little something of what she wrote? We'll uh, approve that licensing <laughs> okay. for, on this <laughs> occasion. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, um, when Jeffrey went back to work, it was as heroic as anything I've ever known. Tits up and eyes dry. I rediscovered another one of the things I love in him. He is willing to face that, the hard and the bad, virtually emotionless. I am only acting. He is better at it. In his rare cruelties, he is genuinely at his most truthful. He is my man. That's my girl. <laughs> you know, she's a brilliant writer, and, and she's inspired me on so many, so many levels. I've been writing more. I mean, she taught me how to write, how to, how to be expressive with the written word. You know, because I've always been a visual person, so, you know, that was always a bit of a challenge because I didn't do a lot of college. Mm. You know, I avoided those things in favor of the visual creative process. Mm. But, yes, that was a, that's a wonderful essay in that, in that book. Another one to go out and grab. Well, and, um, you know, we'll link to your website, which could use a little updating, can I say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Somebody told me that five years ago, okay? <laughs> <laughs> You're waiting them out. See if they're, were they really right? I don't know. Let's wait five more years. I kind of, I, instead of updating that one, I kind of moved over to Tumblr. Oh, so we'll definitely link to that, yeah. Which is very up to date. Okay, good. But, good. but, I, but I do need to update that one to at least put... Yeah. The cover book. of the book and the link to Amazon. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, come on. I was just thinking of that the other day. <laughs> I'll cut it down to just one page. Right. There you book. go. <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> well, this has been great. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, uh, right. yeah, wonderful conversation. And uh, that's Jeffrey Henson Scales. And it's... Uh, now, now, did you, you and your wife co-hyphenate then after you got married? There is no hyphen. Oh, Okay. But yes, she took my name and I took her name. Yeah, my wife and I did the same thing. That's why I'm Chauvin Dalton. Yes, and she's, you know, she's uh, got a very prestigious name, so I couldn't see any reason why I... <laughs> grab that name. Right? Grab that, you know. <laughs> her great-great-granduncle discovered the North Pole, Matthew Henson. Wow. Oh, man. So, <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> to what end do I not share that? Right. All right, well, thanks again. <laughs> Bye, everyone.